there was just a constant need for this type of information because what was interesting about the pandemic was people who had never really worried about being laid off were laid off. And mm-hmm. these people, even though they had reached a point in their careers where they felt they were secure and they didn't really need to ever look for work again, were suddenly like, oh, how do I do this? Welcome to Connection Request. I'm Joel Lehman, and this is the final episode of Connection Request. Well, final episode of season one anyway. Today on the show, I'm talking to Andrew Seaman, Senior Managing Editor for Jobs and Career Development at LinkedIn News. That's right, LinkedIn has a news team. Who knew? Few people have as unique of a perch as Andrew does waking up every day and reporting on the world of work and careers with a mission to help people succeed in what they do. I think that what he does resonates with folks, at least for the more than 175,000 followers he's amassed on LinkedIn. Plus, he knows a thing or two about career journeys, having moved from one of the world's oldest media companies to one of the newest, and even pitching his own job to his bosses, as we talked about in today's show. I wanted to pick Andrew's brain to glean some of the biggest insights he's discovered on the world of work, as well as ask him to reflect on his own career. We talk about how generative AI will affect work, chat about what it's like to work for a news team owned by a tech company that's owned by another tech company, and get his thoughts as a former medical journalist on the COVID-19 coverage. Stick around for the rapid fire where he shares the best and worst career advice he's ever received and his favorite interviewee. Since this is the final episode in season one, we're going to take a few weeks off to plan for season two. And in the meantime, I would love to hear from you. What did you like about the season? What can we do better? What did you not like? Who do you want to hear from next? Let me know so we can make the show even better for you. Okay, here's my conversation with Andrew Seaman. Andrew Seaman, it's so lovely to see you. Welcome to Connection Request. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Can you start off by telling us just a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I am an editor at LinkedIn here in New York City. And a lot of people, they don't realize that LinkedIn actually has an editorial team that rivals a lot of news organizations. So at last count, we have north of 200 editors and editorial people around the world. And my area of specialty is job search and careers. So I manage the jobs and career development team here. I've actually been at LinkedIn for a little over five years. Before that, I was at Reuters with Joel. And then before that, I was in grad school. So I I tend to sit at places for a while. So I was at Reuters for about seven years. I've been here uh, five years. But yeah, while I'm here, I focus on helping people get hired, get people ahead in their careers. And basically what I do is give them actionable advice and and information that will help them sort of propel themselves. Well, I'm so excited just to catch up with you and also get into a little bit of all that that you just mentioned. I think you're in a, a really unique and interesting place where, yeah, you sit both on and at this platform, this company that is right at the heart of not only multiple economies around the world, but also just like how careers happen and how careers work. And on this show, which I feel a little bit silly having you on because it's called Connection Request. I'm forever hopeful that LinkedIn doesn't come knocking on my door um, (laughs) to take the trademark. But yeah, you just, I think, are an expert on this world and career journey. So I'm excited to, to get into all that with you and unpack a little bit of it. Of course, I'm excited to do it. 
So first, I I was reading today as I was um, reading up on you and, and about your journey. Is it true that this job that you have right now, did you pitch it yourself and it started off as maybe something small and then a few years later, it's now grown into an entire team around the world? Is that true? Um, yeah, kind of. Basically, when I joined LinkedIn, so LinkedIn quite smartly more than a decade ago, hired someone named Dan Roth, who I believe was at Portfolio Mag or Fortune. Oh, okay. I forget. He has deep roots in the financial journalism world. Sure. But he basically was hired by LinkedIn and they didn't have a clear idea of really what was going to happen with the editorial side of LinkedIn at that time. And over time, he really figured it out. LinkedIn added the influencer program, which was when really high profile people could publish articles on LinkedIn. And then they started bringing on other journalists and it really worked out. And what happened was they realized that adding journalists and editors into an online ecosystem like LinkedIn really helped the members. And Hmm. LinkedIn, and I I know this sounds like corporate goody-goody sayings, but we always say members first. And what that basically means is, will this help the members? Because the basic idea is, if it doesn't help the members, why, why would we do it? And why would people want to be on LinkedIn? And that really aligns with the mission of journalism, which is to help people sort of lead their lives and give them information to take action in their Hmm. lives. And obviously, good information leads to better actions, or at least that's the hope. So the idea was, okay, well, we can take the editorial team that is working at LinkedIn and replicate that in other countries. So that way, it's not just a bunch of people sitting in the United States deciding what's important for people who are, let's say, in Brazil or India. So we have local teams all around the world. And I was hired for the daily news team here in the U.S. And it was sort of just a couple, like few people when I joined on the daily news team. Mm. And I did that for about a year. And we had just launched our newsletter product. And what basically happened was I said, we don't really have anything for job seekers. So Hmm. why don't I I do, I think at that time it was like a monthly or biweekly newsletter for job seekers. And... It it was, you know, it it was fine. Like Dan, who, you know, we're very fortunate, is very accessible to all of that. He said, hey, that's a great idea. Do it in three weeks. And (laughs) um, I did. Uh, He helped me a lot, like figure out like who I was writing for, things like that. And we got it up and running and it grew slowly. And over time, it just kept getting bigger. And I think I launched it in 2019 in May 2019. And then it got to the point where it was sort of eating into my day-to-day work, like what my actual job description was on the daily news team. Yeah, And I went to my manager at the time and I was like, listen, I can't do both anymore. And the newsletter was growing in popularity. I think we had like 100, 200,000 subscribers at the time. And we agreed that I'd move over to the reporting team so I could dedicate my full time to it. And I think my first day on the reporting team was like March 20th, 2020. 
So <laughs> coincidentally, there was this thing called the pandemic yeah. that happened literally the week before the world shut down and pretty much everyone was out of job out of a job and needed to get hired. And the newsletter just continued to grow. We started doing two issues per week. We started doing live shows every week. And then there was just a constant need for this type of information because what was interesting about the pandemic was people who had never really worried about being laid off were laid off. And mm -hmm. these people, even though they had reached a point in their careers where they felt they were secure and they didn't really need to ever look for work again were suddenly like oh how do i do this yeah so it became my full-time job and then over time additions would basically pop up around the world from other editors and we started building out our team here in the u.s and it's turned into this little group of people within linkedin that i'm very proud of and proud of to work with and yeah we have I think over a dozen get hired editions around the world now. Wow. I don't manage them directly because the way we work is, again, we don't want people in the United States dictating what's important in sure. like India, Australia, or any of those places. So yeah. they're managed locally. But we get to have chats every month or so or help each other out, share ideas. But yeah, it's really great to see it spread across the world. Yeah, it seems like such a, a cool like version of... Yeah, like pitching something yourself in and a few years later, it is your full time thing and it's growing. It also seems, at least to me in, in hindsight, like just a, a very obvious and natural focus <laughs> for LinkedIn's news team to be on. So I, I just I think it's really cool. And I guess that leads me to ask. So as you mentioned earlier, the way we know each other is through our time at Reuters and Thomson Reuters. And I'm just curious, Reuters is one of the oldest media companies in the world. You worked at a place that was very established in many ways. Also, at least in the world of media, a pretty great gig overall stable. There's hundreds of journalists around the world. I'm just curious, how did you decide to make the leap from very old company to much newer and different kind of a company? And what did it feel like going from one to the other? So when I started at Reuters, I was sort of like an intern. It was technically like a fellowship in their DC bureau. And I, I got to cover the Affordable Care Act, which I had been doing during internships at USA Today. And I specialized in sort of healthcare reporting in grad school. And I got to continue that plus do some like weekend coverage of the White House um, when I first got there. And then I went to New York and was a medical reporter. So I covered sort of the science of medicine. And I took that as far as I could. I didn't really want to be an editor on that team. I, mm. I really liked learning sort of everything there was to know about medicine and health overall. But I wanted something different. So I made a switch to the digital team. And it was really that was such a fun team to be on. And through that, I got to know key people at different social media companies. Hmm. And because when you're doing digital and social media stuff, you have to talk to people at Facebook and Twitter yeah. and LinkedIn. And coincidentally, the point person for LinkedIn was someone I went to grad school with, Alex, that we had mm. kept in touch over the years. And basically, he was like, hey, there's this position here. And it was sort of a weird time because there were some changes happening at Reuters. And I was like, oh, I, I think I can move into one of these higher up spots. And when LinkedIn came in, it 
media is a meager world. There are very few like perks perks. You know, I, I always told people sometimes like, you know, when you would go up to the one floor in the Reuters building, that's where the board was and they had like pens and stuff. And I would take the pens because it was almost impossible to get like swag basically there. Whereas when I came to LinkedIn, they have free lunches and things like that. So it's just like when you weighed all of that. And then also I knew my friend Alex was here. I saw the people who were on the editorial team here. And in fact, one of the managers that hired me he was a longtime Reuters person too. And everyone at Reuters just beamed when I mentioned that he was here and he would be one of my managers. So it was really, it was just comforting. It was like, okay, this is new. This is a challenge. And why not? For what it's worth too, I think something about your career to me, like a lot of reporters are on social media, but like you, you were always interested in social media. Obviously you joined the digital team. So it feels like you have in many ways always been sort of pushing forward a little bit and willing to try new things. So I don't know if it feels that way to you. Yeah. I, I, I have to say that there is a saturation point when it comes to social media, I think. Um, yeah. So, you know, when you are one of the people tasked with controlling Reuters social media, it can be quite overwhelming mm. <laughs> because I think at the time, I, I don't know where it stands now, but I think at the time our like Twitter account, our main Twitter account was like one of the top 20 followed in the world. Like our Facebook page was huge and programming that to make sure it is constantly running, making sure that the stories are going from uh, the wire, which Reuters is a wire service to Twitter and all of that. But it takes a lot to to do that. So when I came to LinkedIn, it was actually just nice to focus on, one social media for a while. Yeah. Um, but I always tell people, and I used to be the ethics committee chairperson for the society professional journalist. And what I always told people is like the fundamentals of good information and news and journalism and all of that, they don't change how we deploy them and how we tell stories do. So I wasn't so much scared of that. It was mostly internal complacency. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but it was just sort of like I was getting too comfortable at Reuters and mm. I was like, I, I think I need something different for myself. Mm. That makes sense. I'm curious, any good journalist thinks about their audience at least a little bit, but did your relationship with the audience change when you jumped from a place like Reuters to LinkedIn, both in terms of at least as, as I look at your coverage now, like you are the face of it. You are literally doing it on a platform where you're encouraging people to be part of your community and talk to you and give you feedback. How's that changed for you? Reuters, because it's a wire service, a lot of times when your stuff would like appear in other places, which that's pretty much the main outlet for it, it would just say by Reuters. You would sort of be like, oh, I wrote that. But then like no one would know. Also, it became too much of a headache for a lot of news organizations. Mm. Comments ended up being disabled yeah. on our stories three, four years, I think, maybe before I left Reuters. So really, it was a one way communication channel. And even though we have social media and stuff like that, a lot of the stuff that would come back would be not great because it is the Internet. Whereas here, it's so interesting because I think a lot of people would assume existing on the Internet and asking people to comment and engage would just be a recipe for disaster. Yeah. But 
LinkedIn, you can't really have an anonymous account here. <laughs> and also everything is pretty much public. So it's not something where you can like have a little corner where you're like spewing hate or anything like that. Obviously it's a platform like anywhere else, but it's a good relationship and you earn your community over time. Hmm. And sort of the way I view what I do, which is nice, is I'm not selling anything. Like one of the nice things is our editorial team sits under product. We don't sit under our comms team. Hmm. So we're not being told that we have to pitch LinkedIn in a certain way. We're not being told we have to pitch LinkedIn at all. And in fact, I don't really go on places telling people like how to use LinkedIn hmm. because that's just not my thing. And I don't really spend my time thinking about that. My main focus is like looking at the landscape of the world of work and how people can succeed there. And LinkedIn's a part of that, but it's not the yeah. whole thing. It's a really good relationship because I'm left to my own devices in a lot of ways. And we have a really good team that if it doesn't align with something that's good with our members, then we really push back on it. And then once you really talk about, is this something that's going to help our members? Um, if the answer is no, then we just sort of leave it there and, and we move on. It's a really good relationship because like, I get to sort of go out every day and say, listen, I'm rooting for you and mm. I'm giving you things that are actionable and will hopefully help you. So it's a nice community. And there are people who disagree with maybe what I find or what I say, but I don't think anyone's necessarily ill-intentioned or I, I don't think I've ever received any anyone who's basically spewing hate or just doesn't have at least a legitimate criticism of my work. So yeah. that's nice. Well, speaking of spewing hate, one thing I, I asked you about before is you left Twitter recently and talk about a difference in terms of acquisitions, very different platforms that used to be for some people still is if you're a journalist the place that you spend your time why'd you leave well mostly just because i honestly hadn't been posting there in a while and i have facebook because my parents that's how they sort of send messages in the morning to say hello and stuff um but i spend most of my time on linkedin or scrolling through Instagram and stuff. And I, I tried TikTok. It didn't work out for me. But <laughs> I think what I always tell people is social media is really cool to play around with. But if it's not something you could do well, maybe like get out of the game of that mm. one. So for for Twitter, it was just sort of like I hadn't really been posting that often anyway. And I just, you know, like when I looked after a while, I wasn't really getting the news I needed anymore and things like that. So that's why I left. I mean, to me, this is me making the pitch shot. I won't even ask you to make it. But like LinkedIn, I think, continues to be one of the most underrated social media platforms of, of the big ones, right? Like, it, you know, I, I used to work with social media and I can't turn off that part of my brain that's always <laughs> thinking about it as just from like an academic perspective even. But it's just like one of those things where you take kind of the past decade and look at some of the hatred and the misinformation and impact on elections and democracies and like all that kind of stuff. By the way, no one at LinkedIn is paying me to say any of this, but it is highly underrated as a place that that values people's identity, as you said, right? Like you have to be your real self on there. And although it's changed, I think, as it's evolved, it is, I think, a generally friendlier and a lot of the people that are there who are in the comment sections, like actually are asking questions and care about who you are as a person and all that. So that's my, that's my small LinkedIn pitch. 
I'm curious, Andrew, one thing too that I think you said a really interesting intersection of is over the past few years, I think people have been talking a lot about creators and creator can mean many things to many different people. I would say most journalists, professional journalists, maybe balk at that term a little bit or have at least a little bit of a, of a difficulty because creators can mean a very different thing than what journalism is. I'm curious, mm-hmm. how do you think about sort of the the relationship and the pull between creators and journalists? And, and <laughs> what do you think about that term as somebody who, at the very least, you're spending a lot of your time creating content for multiple platforms rather than just text, say, right, for, yeah. for a website? So a lot of journalists won't necessarily like my opinion, but you don't have to go to school to be a journalist. There's no card that says you are a journalist. Congratulations. Mm. In some countries there are, but in the United States there's not. It's baked into the Constitution that anyone can engage in the practice and profession of journalism if they want. And I think that's a really cool thing. And there's always like the people who will argue that there's too much bias in journalism and stuff like that. And there there are points to those, but at the same time, there's space in this very big public square for everyone. There are those impartial, fair news organizations like the New York Times, Reuters, AP, all of those places. But there's also room for partisan media and mm-hmm. there's room for people and their opinions. And I think it's we don't gain from telling people that they can't use their voice. What I always said journalism was is reporting the truth as we know it right now. Mm. And, you know, when I was a medical reporter, I got to report on some pretty touchy subjects. And what I always challenged people when they came to me was like, okay, well, if you disagree with the CDC, show me your data. And usually that's when they would say, oh, do your own research. (laughs) But yeah, so my whole thing is just, I, I wish there was more respect for journalists who are really dedicated to putting out good information into the world Mm. and trying to inform people about their country, their region, their world. But it doesn't mean that, you know, someone else can't share their voice or their opinion on it. Well, I'm very biased. I am not a capital J journalist, right? I don't consider myself that. I do care about the information I put out in the interviews that I do. And I try to ask smart people smart questions. But I, for what it's worth, I like your opinion. And I think the fact that there's, yeah, it's a big tent. Anybody can be on the internet and Mm -hmm. anybody can use the tools to share their opinions. There is a huge amount at organizations like yours and others of people who absolutely care about getting it right and do fact checking and have editors and have copy like all those kinds of things right are are not to be taken for for granted by any means and the other thing i would add is if people went to spj.org to find their code of ethics like i haven't really been involved with them for a while but the last time we rewrote the code of ethics in 2014 there was sort of a discussion of is this code for journalists or is this Mm. for anyone who wants to spread good information Mm. so it is written like you know if you read it you're like oh anyone could actually follow it and put out good information it doesn't have to be a journalist yeah um but there was sort of the sense even back in 2014 that maybe this is going to evolve into something where it's like if you want to be responsible in terms of putting out information this is what we think is responsible information or the elements of it and i suppose at that time like you like 
the word citizen journalism was a very big term, yes. right? And all sorts <laughs> of things about, yeah, using social media to organize and all sorts of mm -hmm. things. I'll plug SPJ in the show notes, as well as your excellent newsletters, podcasts, et cetera. But that, that's a really good shout. I think to me, 2023 so far, and I think we'll look back on it, is the year of AI. Like you can't walk two feet without hearing somebody talking about artificial intelligence in some ways. You work for LinkedIn, which we haven't talked about this yet, but which is owned by Microsoft, mm -hmm. who are in the game squarely of AI, right? Investing $10 billion in ChatGPT, which is sort of the hottest thing on the block in the conversations around AI. So I guess I have to ask you both, like, how are you thinking about how artificial intelligence will or already is perhaps intersecting with your own work as a journalist, but then also as you kind of cover and think about the broader careers landscape, right? I couldn't have this conversation with you without kind of asking your your current take and thoughts around artificial intelligence. Yeah, so obviously I, I, AI has been around for so long in terms of different levels or different abilities. So a lot of times when people say, I, you know, I, I don't want to use AI at all or something like that. It's like, well, you probably are in some aspects of your life. Yeah. And generative AI is really interesting because it has been part of journalism, actually, the professional mm. journalism for a little while. I think mm. the LA Times, I may be wrong on the exact specifics, but I think the LA Times, they, they employed sort of an AI to write whenever there were earthquakes. In Los Angeles. So it was like, yeah, and it's very simple. It, the National Geological Survey puts out like, oh, you know, there's a point to earthquake, you know, south of Calabasas or something like that. And the AI spits out a very generic news report. And yeah. it's been also used in sports for a little while because you get the box scores and the computer can sort of spit out just the basics of here's the scores, here's errors, things like that. So I think journalism even though it's a tr profession that has historically been thought of as like behind the times, hmm. uh, it has actually been like dabbling in this world a little, little bit. So sure. when everything sort of erupted early this year in what March, I think chat GPT four came out, I wasn't terrified of it because if it took this long to go from those basic earthquake reports to now uh, it's not like we're going to evolve very quickly and no humans will ever be put out of work or go extinct at least in the near future but so i see it as a tool i don't see it as a replacement because there are things that you just can't get from ai and also ai is they're not perfect and mm. I, I do play around with it quite a bit when i do a podcast I, I have my own podcast and when i'm looking at the transcripts and i'm trying to organize like okay what are the main points we covered mm. instead of reading it five times like i used to i'll put it into chat gpt or whatever ai service that i have most handy and i'll say what are the five main points of this mm. and it'll give me five like things it'll pull out some quotes for me and then i could run with that and it, yeah so it's it's a tool in my day but every time I've tried to make it do something where maybe it could not replace me because I still put in the like nuts and bolts into yeah. the system. Yeah. But it's not ready for prime time usually. Yeah. So it's like a tool in the toolbox, but it's not it's not the whole shebang yet. Um, yeah. And, I, and there's AI has hallucinations. So you have to be really careful with it in mm. terms of if it's. So the one time I was trying to figure out how it was at citing information from across the internet. So I 
basically sat there challenging it to do different things. And when I asked for citations for the facts that it pulled, it gave me citations, but I think they were fake. <laughs> because I could find hints of what it was talking about online, but I yeah. in like 10 citations, I think I maybe was able to find ac- one actual like connect the dots between one of them. Yeah. So you have to be careful. You have to be responsible. So I play around with it. I've written three or four articles with its help, I think, at this point. Cool. And I just I put something at the top that says, listen, you know, I used AI for this. And for the most part, I'm still kind of writing the whole thing. Yeah. Um, so it's so even when I put the note there, I'm like, do I have to? Because I still wrote this. It's just yeah. I like I asked it to pull out quotes for me or whatever. But yeah, so I'm not I'm not terrified of it. I, I see it as a tool. I don't see it as it's going to do really cool things. And, and the whole thing is like companies, everyone's going to try and use it, yeah. break it and learn its limits. And I think that's happens with every new technology. Yeah, I like the concept of a tool or, or a co-pilot, right? Like if a lot of people yeah. refer to it as I, like for this show, I'll often I didn't do it today, but I'll often just say like, I'm interviewing this person is their profession. Give me 10 questions. And most of the time I don't use them because I like mine better, but we'll, we'll see. I'm sure that'll change. And it is fun to get ideas and inspiration and, you know, save on some of that kind of brainstorming. Yeah, I know. And sometimes it is fun if you start realizing it's like it's losing the plot a little bit and like it it starts really going off into like left field to just go down that rabbit hole a little bit and see like, how crazy can we make this thing go? Yeah, absolutely. Incredible piece in the New York Times from kind of the the early days of this few months ago of uh, falling in love with Kevin Roos and all sorts of other things. If anybody oh, hasn't yeah, yeah. read that article, yeah, yeah. they should. Yeah, I never was able, I never got any of the AIs to do something like that. Maybe I'm just unlovable when it comes to computers. But, uh, <laughs> or maybe they're really working hard to try to yeah, like, it could be both. put some know. of those limits on it. We'll see, time will tell. I'm curious, you mentioned uh, a former part of your life was as a medical journalist. What was it like? Obviously, you were very focused during covid on, as you said, there's like a, a boon, I think, in, in your coverage and a lot of people mm-hmm. really interested in trying to figure out how to get jobs. I imagine at least a part of your brain as you were trying to figure out and get information on COVID just like the rest of us couldn't turn off that part that used to do that for a living. I'm just curious, any kind of, any, what was that time like for you overall and any kind of like thoughts <laughs> or takeaways generally of the coverage during that time? Obviously, we could yeah hours of podcasts talking about that but i don't know was that something you thought about yeah a little bit because actually i still had not transitioned fully to doing get hired and and Mm. my current role as like this is my main thing uh when covid was breaking out and i'm fortunate to still have a lot of friends who are medical reporters and and some like they solely report on viruses and things like that so Mm. i I had been watching the coverage a little bit and um, I knew someone who was pretty much stranded in the USA because they couldn't get back to China at that time. So I was listening to what was happening over there and I was seeing my friends who report on viruses or emerging medical stuff. And I I saw how scared they were and I was like, oh, this is this is going to be bigger than I think most people think. And then when things started shutting down, I think like Italy was one of the first ones hit really hard. We started to gear up here. And fortunately, because I, I wasn't completely removed from the medical world, I end up sort of liaising with the World Health Organization a little bit about how we can inform our members about like what 
the current best practices were because it was something new. Like uh, coronaviruses are not new, but yeah. it's a new actual virus. So it was nice to sort of keep one foot in that. And and even to this day, I, I still chat periodically with the social team at the World Health Organization if they're passing through and hmm. things like that. And it, it was everyone, I think, tried to do their best during that time. Obviously, some people didn't. There was misinformation out there. But yeah, I, it, it's really amazing to see how things evolved so quickly and how people were expected to manage it. Like here in New York City, where I live, it was really weird because it, it, I've never experienced something like that where it just everything went silent except for sirens all the time. And I'm fortunate that I live near Central Park and another park and stuff. So, you know, you went for your daily like mindfulness walks or whatever. And then they put like a field hospital in Central Park. So you're like, OK, well, that, that's a reminder of what's actually happening. Yeah. But yeah, I think there was some really amazing coverage during that time for how little information we had. And then just the idea of like what different professions were going through. Mm. Um, that was really amazing. And and it really sh- reshaped our world in so many ways and especially the world of work. So you had these people, what sort of stuck out to me is you had people who were obviously exhausted. You had teachers, you had parents who were trying to do their work while also watching their kids. And then you had nurses and, and doctors and all of that. And then you heard of like funeral home workers and stuff like that. And, you know, as you saw these people who were then out of work, you saw them immediately sort of think like, I don't think I want to do what I was doing anymore. So Mm -hmm. you had the great, a lot of people called it the great resignation, but we called it the great reshuffle because Hmm. it wasn't like these people were quitting and just sitting at home. They were finding new jobs. Yeah. So really it was incredible to see how health and medicine really affects everyone. And that's why I think I was very fortunate to cover that area for so many years. Yeah for so many years and the world of work now because they're both things that basically they're unavoidable Mm. health you always no matter how often you want to be like okay that doesn't affect me or something like that it does and then the world of work you know whether we like it or not we have to work most of us there there is a very small percentage of people who don't have to but otherwise yeah there is a sliver of society that does not have to work And so I always try and sort of think, okay, yeah, realistically, there's that idea of you have to show up at your your job. And what I always tell people, and and sometimes when they find out what I do, they'll be like, oh, so (laughs) so I'm very fortunate to sort of have had a foot in both of these worlds that affect people so deeply and really everyone. Yeah. Uh, It's going to sound obvious, but you both have your own career and your own career journey as well as you've been covering other people's and and gleaning all the the most interesting insights. What are like what are some of the biggest I guess lessons or, or reflections on your own career and maybe some of the biggest ones that you're trying to work on and think about right now? I think the some of the biggest is that you're never stuck where you are because. I there is a portion of the working world that think that they are the experts, only experts in their field. And I am very fortunate to have had great mentors and teachers in my life that showed me that even though I was not the best at math in college and high school and everywhere in between, When I was a medical reporter, I could learn how to read statistics and Mm. I could ask intelligent questions to epidemiologists and scientists and all that. And 
then from there, I can switch to doing breaking general news. And you can make these pivots. So that's why when a lot of times people will challenge me and say, oh, what do you know about this? And I'll say, well, I, I don't think my career has been extraordinary or out of the norm, but I think I have been able to sort of pivot to different topics over the years and go from policy to general information and politics and medicine and now careers and workplace stuff. So I really am proud at that history of being mm. able to do that because I think now I can teach other people like, hey, if you don't want to do what you're doing for forever, you can make the pivot. It's not easy, but it can be done. And yeah. I think that is sort of the transition point maybe I'm at now that I'm currently working on is like, you know, I've been in the workforce for going on 15 years. And I think you start getting to the point where you manage people and you don't want to screw up their lives or their careers. So you do take it more seriously and you sort of say, okay, how can I, how can I help them? And how yeah. can I teach them to do what I do? Because I think as you're in your career, longer, you start realizing, I can't do this every day. And maybe there are some people, there are some people that I think can do something sure. forever. And that's fine. Because my mantras are always like, you don't have to love your job, but it shouldn't make you miserable. And also you get to dictate the relationship you have with work. And for me, it's just, I kind of need to evolve. Hmm. And for me, it's how do I help other people now? So I feel like I'm not anywhere near retirement, but it is, I think I am getting to the point where I do have to say, okay, well, I've done all these things. So yeah. now I What's can next? help other people do yeah. that too and, and sort of move on with myself too. Yeah. Well, I'm curious what, like, what, what is your own relationship with work? Um, you, I was, I think I saw one of your Instagram posts recently about wanting to be really intentional that you're not here to be like, oh, you need to be working all the time or sort of hustle culture and all that stuff. I'm, I'm just curious what, what role does work play in your own life and how much of what you do is wrapped up in your identity as who you are? Yeah. So that's, I did have to do a serious examination of that when I left Reuters, because when I came to LinkedIn, it's a great place to work. And I was working with really great people, but I was like kind of depressed when I got here. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, what, what is this? And I remember being on a Crosstown Express bus the one day and I opened up a New York Times opinion piece that it was like one of the New York Times opinion pieces that are like half opinion piece, half news article. Mm. And they had interviewed a bunch of people. And one of them was a psychologist who is also like an executive coach, Lisa Orbe Austin, and who I've been fortunate enough to get to know in this role. But they talked a lot about how people wrap their identities in their careers and I realized that I had done that at Reuters because yeah. even though like I had switched jobs pretty substantially while I was there from being the senior medical reporter to um, doing their social media and digital stuff, I was still tied to Reuters. So it was like I still had like that security blanket. Yeah. And then when I came to LinkedIn, I shed that and I was like, oh, I lost a big part of myself. And especially hmm. because I had been there literally since I left college. When I left grad school, I went right to Reuters. Yeah. So. It was a big part of me. So people like they knew, oh, like when I met people, they're like, oh, how's Reuters? They knew that was my thing. 
Yeah. And then also at the same time, I, I should say that I also stepped down from being the ethics committee chairperson for the Society mm. of Professional Journalists, which I had done for like four years. So it was like a lot of things being yeah. sort of like stripped from my identity at the same time. So I've been much more conscious here to make sure that I exist elsewhere. Mm. And also that if the world changed tomorrow, you know, I would still be me. So I do, and I'm very conscious of that, I think. And and sometimes like I do dip into maybe too much work from time to time, but I try to have a healthy distance now. I I do try and take what I learn and and put it into practice for myself. Well, it's like everything you described, I think is such, I think most people who have a job go through a version of that, right? And over time, you're just like always thinking about what is your own relationship to work. I mean, something I think that took me a long time to learn sort of in a similar way is I need other things in my life, whether that's volunteering or hobbies or friendship circle, like whatever that is, right? Where there's not one place. And I'll say one corporation specifically that owns like the entirety of, of Joel, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that that just like takes a while to sort of get at and learn and just always be sort of constantly thinking about your own relationship to work. So I, I, I appreciate your take on that. Yeah, no. And it's one of those things too, where like, especially now where I, I feel like I, I was still very fortunate and I think we're about the same age where the internet was still not in it, not in its infancy when I graduated high school or anything like that, but it was like, it's, it was a much more, um, experimental less sort of centralized place Hmm. so it wasn't like we were putting our identities all up there there were there were very few influencers like the influencers like i think when i was in college or high school was like the osbournes on mtv or wherever (laughs) they were and stuff like that and and not the great greatest influencers but now you have all these people who are putting everything up online and, and what i sometimes tell people when they are doing that or something like that is like to make sure you keep a part of yourself for you or your family Um, because if you put everything up there then it kind of becomes public property and you do want to save some of yourself for yourself yeah i think that's a really good point so maybe one kind of last question is I know you said you're not a LinkedIn stan and it's uh-huh. not your job to give us tips. Well, to be fair, I, I do like LinkedIn. They do okay. like, yeah. like they, they put this money in my account like every two weeks <laughs> and it's really great. Um, I just, so, I just curious because you're such an expert, you spend so much of your time in your life there. You literally work at the building, you're with yeah. the people, any like, um, any LinkedIn tips and tricks you want to just pass along to the audience? I'll share mine, which is I, I shared it publicly. I talk about it all the time, which is advanced search. It's I swear the product team is trying to keep it the best hidden secret. <laughs> but any little like tips or tricks beyond, oh, you should have a LinkedIn profile and you should, you know, have a good summary, all those things that you want to share as personal favorites. Y- yes. So like I I exist in like what we call the feed where you see all those updates and people sharing their opinions. And there's especially for people who want to grow an audience on LinkedIn, there are always those sort of forums or discussions about what kind of post catches fire and how to go viral and all that mm. stuff. And what I always tell people is it, don't worry about that. Like I work here and I, I don't even really pay much attention to that. Um, and what I always tell people is like, focus on the value you're adding to the conversation. Yeah. Don't, you know, if, if you're just saying like, had a great meeting today and it's a picture of like four people, it's like, okay, that that's great for you. But what did you talk about? Did you yeah. discuss something really interesting in your industry? Push the conversation forward. 
And I think that will take people much farther in their journey to be seen in their industry and mm. their corner of the world. So mm. I always tell people, don't worry about what everyone says like you should be doing or how you should structure a post or something like that. Just add value in your post. Mm. And, and then the other thing I would say is remember that it's really an interesting place where you can have those discussions about the world of work and and your industry and things like that. And, and you could find your people there. Yeah. Uh, so it's, I always say it's like a, a kind of like a, the water cooler. It, it doesn't have totally. to be just like the, it, it doesn't have to be just hardcore discussions about Python coding or something. If you're an engineer, you could sort of say like, Hey, you know, the, these tech layoffs are getting concerning or I'm burned out as a healthcare worker. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it's all of those things that are encapsulated there. Two great pieces of advice. I Something that kind of frustrates me is whenever you hear anyone say, LinkedIn is only for business, whatever, or LinkedIn <laughs> is only for this. And I'm like, LinkedIn is a social platform. That means that you get to, you are allowed to talk about whatever you want overall, right? Obviously, there's some rules and guidelines, yeah, yeah. but like you, sh it should be a reflection of who you are and your identity and the things you care about. And yes, it should probably have something to do with work and business, but it th there isn't to your point, there's not like one right way to do it and it needs to be what what you think. Yeah. yeah. And actually, one of the things that I, I think a lot of us really appreciate is that our members like police themselves almost in a way yeah. because they know, listen, this is what I'm saying is going to be public. My name is on it. And then also the other members will say like, hey, this, are you OK? And depending on what you're posting and, you know, especially during elections and stuff like that, when people post things that maybe are too political, like you'll have people that say, hey, listen, this is probably isn't the best place for this. So it's really great that our members have such, I'm trying to think the right word, have such sort of ability to interact with each other and say like, hey, mm -hmm. this is the, this is the environment we want to create here. And please respect that. Yeah. One more question before we get to the rapid fire round and then get you on your way. The Our friends at Breaking Views, I think just yesterday, this week, as we're oh, yeah, I saw it, that. last I didn't week get to read in June, the, the headline, I'll just say, is LinkedIn ages like a fine wine. And in terms of major corporations purchasing social networks or really just like a tech company, right? I think both currently what were seven years into the acquisition. I think it's been one of the better success stories, right? And and hopefully it will be for time to come. I think the fact that you have an entire editorial team that still exists and makes sense and, <laughs> and all of that, as well as like the platform has grown and continues to be important rather than sort of gone the other way. I'm just curious, yeah, like anything, Thoughts on that? I think you joined after the acquisition, but not mm -hmm. super long after. Any thoughts about that sort of like the relationship between the parent company as well as, I don't know, are you bullish on the future as far as being a journalist at a tech platform owned by another tech company? Yeah. So in terms of the relationship, I think it's always, as far as I've worked here, you don't really think about it that much because mm -hmm. LinkedIn is sort of we're our own little entity and there are cousins over there. And yeah. so it's nice when you like run into the Microsoft people because it, you are part of this bigger system, but LinkedIn has its own culture and stuff. And I think we hmm. get to harness each other's energy, but yeah, it's not something that we, I, I don't think it's something that we think about that much. And, hmm. and we get to 
we definitely get to, like I said, share resources, ideas, things like that. And then in terms of being a journalist at in, in a tech company owned by another tech company, it, it's I think it's really great. And I think what LinkedIn does is a great model for other places and, and to really embrace the ideals of good information and yeah. also sort of the knowledge of experienced information miners yeah. and journalists because i think in for much of the history of the technology industry they have been historically very protective that was one of the things that i challenged myself when i came to linkedin was like listen if it challenges your ethics or something like that, you're going to have to bounce. Yeah. And in all of my years here, like I said, I've been here a little over five. I've never had an instance where like my ethics were compromised or anything like that, because it really, our whole thing is, like I said, you know, is this good for our members? Wow. And so I, I think more any company, tech or otherwise, should embrace it. And really at this point, I think a lot of media companies, they're going to be tech companies if they aren't already. Yeah, So good point. Well, that makes me really happy. And one of the, especially right now, like one of the rarer, I guess, stories in like in the relationship between tech and media working. So I'm, I'm very happy about that. Um, let's get to the rapid fire. And then I want to get you on your way back to your real job other than mm -hmm. just talking to me. <laughs> so are you ready? You ready yeah. to go? All right. The worst piece of career advice you've heard or seen? Put the job posting on your resume in white text. Ooh, that's funny. Best piece of career advice you've heard or seen recently? Tell the person that you're interviewing with that you actually want the job. Mm. Uh, favorite person you've interviewed in your career? Ooh, RuPaul. Ooh, oh, that's fun. If you weren't at LinkedIn News, anywhere else you'd want to be? Oh... Manifest it. Come on, Andrew. I don't know why, but my brain keeps going to a candy factory. I don't Ooh, know. So maybe her, maybe Hershey's. I don't, I'm a Pennsylvanian originally. So sure. maybe Hershey. Maybe it's just like my fond childhood memories. That sense. <laughs> okay. Follow up. Could you ever see yourself? You were talking about like, at least right now, you have done a lot of things. You're moving into a role of helping other people do their jobs. I'm just curious. You you are and you always have been a journalist. Could you ever see yourself jumping into like a corporate role at LinkedIn or Microsoft or elsewhere? I don't do well in boardrooms. <laughs> I like I, I I'm perfectly capable of navigating, uh, you know, corporate environments. But it's just it's one of those things where it's. Um, well, actually, no, at LinkedIn and, and Microsoft, it'd be fine. But <laughs> when I historically, when I'm going and I'm going to say Thomson Reuters, because that is the only other place that I've worked professionally full time is, you know, you work, walk into a boardroom and everyone who works together, they're all in suits. It's like, why are we in suits? We're just talking <laughs> to each other. And it, that didn't happen on at Reuters because we're all journalists and yeah. wearing like t-shirts or, or button downs. But uh, yeah, on the like the sales size, I, I always struggled with things like that. It's yeah. Like, I don't think we have to be in three-piece suits today. Oh, my goodness. Well, I think some of that, luckily, knocked on wood, is changing, at least at some companies. Cover letters, yes or no? Oh, yeah. I'm a big fan. Cool. And... You don't need them, but I am a fan. Okay. That's, that's an important distinction. And then, finally, resume or LinkedIn? Oh, both. I love it. A um, job search is holistic. It's not one thing or the other. Andrew, uh, where can people follow you and your journey and all of your fabulous uh, media empire? So the best place to go is LinkedIn.com and search for Andrew Seaman and you'll see 
me pop up and my get hired stuff. And you could also go to LinkedIn and search for LinkedIn news. You'll find our page. And like I said, we're a global team. So if you type in LinkedIn news, uh, France or LinkedIn news, Europe or LinkedIn news, uh, India, you should be able to find your local additions there. And yeah, we're always there. So if you just go to LinkedIn, you'll find us. And if you get your daily rundown in the morning, that's our team. And all that stuff. We'll find you if you don't find us. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a wonderful place to end it. Andrew, I'm so grateful for your time. It has been such a delight catching up with you. Um, I'm a fan of your podcast and your content. And there's lots of just like really like short, actual insight for not only job seekers, also people who just want to get ahead in their own careers and their journeys. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I appreciate it. Of course. It was great catching up. Okay, that is a wrap on season one. Holy guacamole, I can't believe it. Can you? I just want to give a huge thanks to everyone who made this show possible. A huge shout out to all of my guests who trusted me with their stories. You are all amazing. Big thanks to all my friends who gave me early feedback, support, ideas, and love on the show. Big shout out to Marie from Shrub Content who edited this episode. Thank you, Marie, for being part of the pod squad. You rock. Big shout out to Laura, who did all the branding and design for Shrug Content. Mom and Dad, you listen every week and have always supported my creative endeavors. So thank you and I love you. I also have to give a big shout out to my better half, Natalie. You are such a big part of the support system of Shrug Content and Connection Request. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Carla, you still retain the title of Connection Request number one super fan. Thank you. And most of all, thank you to all of you for listening. You are the reason I make this show and will continue to make it. To that end, get at me with ideas and feedback for season two. You know I love hearing from you. Send me your deepest, darkest secrets and feedback at connect at shrugcontent.com. This show, of course, is a production of Shrug Content, which you can learn more about at shrugcontent.com. You can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Threads. You can find the show on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can likely hear my dog Effie barking in the background. Shout out to her as well for making the show happen. Until next time, be well, and thank you for listening.